Well, we're going to be looking at Luke 17 again, so we're back in the Gospel of Luke in the middle of chapter 17, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably find one in the pew back in front of you, and uh, we'll be looking at signs of the second coming. If you, uh, you know, take in any of the news, the newspaper, the television, the radio, the internet, or whatever, uh, you know that things are not good in our world. The world is falling apart morally in some countries. The number of baby girls being killed by abortion and even after birth is astronomical. One uh, uh, article just described uh, a country where um, a woman gave birth to a little girl and when they saw it, they thought, ah, and they threw it in the trash can. And, you know, we might think this is uh, terrible, but the fact is, is our country is, uh, you know, one of the great abortion countries of the world. And a lot of mothers uh, don't want their children. And it, it's pretty sad. It is pretty sad. Governments are are slowly trying to tell us how to raise our kids. And uh, uh, all around the world, you know, moral sins, fornication, uh, you know, that fornication is just nothing. I mean, that's like drinking a glass of water today and adultery and homosexuality and polygamy are increasing. And uh, the world, of course, is crying out for tolerance, tolerance of everything but Christianity, but the truth, but the gospel, but Jesus, the way, the truth and the life. Various action groups and industries are working hard to support politicians who will support laws to help them promote evil Pornography is just astronomical. Uh, you know, it, it tells you something about your country when the two most guarded and protected rights in America are pornography and abortion. Families and marriages are falling apart. Marriages, you know, is trying to be redefined. Men are let, letting women do more and more. You know, they want them to have pain in childbirth and work by the sweat of their brow. You know, go to work all day, clean the house, make dinner, train. The husband, meanwhile, goes to his air-conditioned office, comes home, sits in front of the TV, lets the wife do twice as much. In universities across the country, male attendance is dropping. Now the average college, 60% of the attendees are women. Some colleges, it's even up to 70%. Now, where are the men? Where are the hardworking, honest, godly, spiritual leaders? They're nah, playing video games, sitting at home, living with mom. I mean, we're living in trying times. Things don't look good. Paul predicted these last days in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where he says to Timothy, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self and lovers of money and boastful and arrogant and revilers and disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness Although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith. Now that is just the newspaper every day. A condensation of what we're seeing in the world today. The world is morally imploding. Sin is escalating. God, the Bible, Christ... He's trying to be silenced. Yeah, Go to church, just don't tell anybody. Be a Christian, just don't share the gospel. Just, just go to your little holy huddle and just pine away there until your little church dies. But don't bother us with the truth. Don't bother us with the gospel. Be quiet. We want freedom to say what we want. You be quiet. That's our world. And when you look at all of these things and realize what's going on, you know, it's enough to make you hyperventilate. To grow anxious, to be depressed. But listen, we need to be like the sons of Issachar. Do you remember them? First Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. It says, they were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. We need to be like that in the church. We need to understand our times. And when we see the world going from bad to worse, not grow anxious and depressed. And you know what the government's doing? You know what the president's doing? You know what so-and-so is doing? Did you hear about so-and-so? It's predicted. We know it's going to happen. God said it would happen. It's going to happen. But how do you trust God in times like this? When you think about it, how do you, how do you trust God? How do you, you know, relax or survive when, when you see all these things in the world and the evil and the persecution and the corruption and the sin? How do you, how do you like maintain sanity? Well, you can remind yourself that God is sovereign. That's a good place to start. That these things are predicted in the word of God and that his grace is sufficient. And when our hearts are focused on these things, even in the midst of catastrophe, we can know, well, God sees it. God's planned it. God's sovereign. God's in control. His grace is sufficient. He is the king of heaven and earth. He is going to never leave us or forsake us. Nothing takes him by surprise. He has a plan for all, and that helps. But as we come to the latter half of Luke 17, we're going to find out one of the great things that gives us encouragement when the world is falling apart in these last days. The whole focus, the overarching theme of this latter part of Luke 17 is judgment. Judgment at the second coming of Christ. So it's a little dark. It's a little dreary and He is going to, in chapter 21, address the second coming again in a little bit more hopeful light. John the Baptist came onto the scene preaching, repent for the kingdom of his hand. Jesus comes on the scene. The first words out of his mouth after he starts his ministry is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then he sends his disciples out telling people to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the religious leaders know this. They've heard it over and over again and they're getting tired of it. Why do you keep saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand? We don't see any signs of the kingdom. We don't see huge armies amassing to defeat Rome. You keep saying it's at hand. You've said it's at hand for three years. Well, where is it? And they ask him in Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, if you look there. Now, when they've been questioning the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God was coming. 
There wasn't, you know, we were tired of warnings. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Where is it? And so Jesus then answers and gives a pretty surprising answer. And he says, listen, the kingdom of heaven is not coming with signs to be observed. The Greek is literally the, the kingdom of God, God these, these signs that, that you all know are in the prophets, that we all know that are in the scriptures. These signs are right now not coming. And they're thinking, what? How can the kingdom of God come and not have the signs that are predicted by the prophets? He's a lunatic. And then Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Why? Because Jesus was the embodiment of the kingdom. He was the king. He had his followers who were kingdom saints. And they're standing right there in front of him. He goes, here we are. If you believe in me right now, you will enter into the status of kingdom saints. I've come to offer you the kingdom and you're rejecting it. And because they didn't see any signs and they didn't see any wonders in the sky and all those things the prophets talked about, the heavens being shaken and all that stuff, they thought, well, he's obviously just a false teacher. But Jesus knew what they wanted. Jesus knew what they were talking about. Jesus knew they were referring to his second coming, but because they would not believe in him, he purposely spoke to them in cryptic language as a judgment upon them. They got things in parables. They got things which seemed to them to be riddles. Jesus could have said, listen, there's two comings of the Messiah. One, when he comes to die for the sins of men and another, when he comes back in glory, you're missing out. But he didn't say that. He just says, it's in your midst. And so in their mind, instantly, well, he's a false teacher. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He's saying it's in our midst. And obviously there's all these signs. We know the prophets, you know what it says. And so he's wrong. So Jesus then turns to his disciples, I think privately, and talks to them. The Pharisees wanted to know what was going to happen when Jesus came in his second coming glory. And Jesus wouldn't tell them. But now he turns to his disciples and says, but I'll tell you. And so look at Luke 17 and follow along as I read verses 22 through 25. He says, and he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see the days of the son of man and you will not see it. They will say to you, look here or look there, look here. Do not go away. Do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the son of man be in his day. But first... He must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. From our text this morning, I want to show you three second coming realities that should make you long for Christ's return so that you will have hope, not despair, and really turn your eyes away from the love of this world. The first is tribulation makes the heart grow fonder for Jesus. Look at verse 22. Where we read, and he said to his disciples, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the son of man and will not see it. Now notice several things here. First, Jesus is now speaking to his disciples, not the Pharisees. He is talking about the future. The days will come when you will long to see. So he's talking about some longing they will have. The word longing is really a word sometimes it's translated lust. It's, it's this passion, this desire, this, this, this craving for something. And in this case, one of the days of the son of man. Now the phrase 
one of the days of the Son of Man is kind of unique because it only appears here in the Bible, but other similar phrases appear in the context. It's usually translated uh, translated as it is in, uh, not translated, but stated as it is in verse 24, 26, and 30, the day or the days of the Son of Man. Some have suggested that when it says one of the days, it might be translated that you will look for that first day of his coming or you could look at it as a, a whole picture, the Messiah's day, that, that one day of his, his coming. If you look down at verse 26, Jesus is speaking of the judgment that will fall on the ungodly, like it fell on those in the days of Noah. And it says, and just as it appeared in the days of Noah, so will also in the days of the Son of Man, or verse 30, where Jesus says it will be just the same on that day the Son of Man is revealed. A similar phrase, speaking of Jesus' second coming. So I think the days of the Son of Man, some have thought that it means, you know, there's going to be a day after I die and I rise up into heaven, you're going to long for the days we're having right now, the same kind of days where you're walking around with me here on earth. That's one way to understand it. Another way to understand it is there's going to be a future day after I go and you're going to long for my second coming. I think that's what it is. That seems to fit the context best. And so they're going to long, which tells us they're going to be under tribulation and then they're going to look for Christ in his second coming glory. Why would they do that? Well, because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Christians are going to be persecuted. There's going to, they're going to go through a lot of trial. And Jesus says, you know what? You're going to, you're going to go through trial and that trial is going to make you long for me but you're not going to see it you're not going to see me coming back in glory it's not going to happen to your generation it's going to happen to a future one after the tribulation period that daniel's 70th week that unprecedented time of global judgment when god again reaches out to the jews and brings many jews to christ and and judges the world right before he comes back in second coming glory but the lesson here i think that we need to take away is this that trials in the world trials that you suffer tribulation persecution difficulties should make you long for christ and the question is this do is that how it works in your life i mean when you look at your life you know last week or just last month we'll do a little test here last week or last month how many how many times how often did you think of oh i can't wait for jesus to get back you know when you're monday morning you're getting up for work it'd be nice to just have the rapture now (laughs) when you're moving just along along that freeway and everything's fine you turn the corner and you see this gridlock as far as far as the eye can see oh the rapture would be nice to have now when you need to do something unpleasant and confront somebody or, you know, fire an employee or something, it's like, okay, Lord, let's go right now. I mean, you're longing. The trial just makes you long. When you see the evil in the world, the question is, do you hate it? Do you long to be rid of it, to be out of its presence, or do you kind of like it? Do you kind of want to, um, you know, enjoy it? That's not good. That's not good. Second, does it make you maybe long for Christ coming a little bit? You know, sometimes there is, uh, you know, there's certain people who kind of, you know, well, yeah, these little things kind of irritate me some. 
they kind of disrupt my peace and my pleasure. And so I don't like them. Some of these people, they, they don't like the extreme forms of evil. But they're fine indulging in the minor little sins. Which of course are not little. They're just rationalizing their indulgence in some sins and not others. And if that is you, surely sin has sunk its teeth into you and you need to repent too. If, if you love the world and its sins to any degree as a habit and you don't long for Christ's return, you need Jesus. Because when you come to Christ, you repent of your sins, you turn your back on the world, and granted, you're going to keep sinning, you're going to keep falling into sin, but you're going to hate it, you're going to hate it, you're going to strive against it, you're going to pursue that holiness without which no one will see the Lord, as the author of Hebrews says. You're going to want righteousness. You're going to want to be like Jesus. I know some of you are maybe slightly irritated at these things, but the reason you're irritated is not for the right reason. You're irritated because you can't have your peace and your pleasure in this world and the evil messes with you. You know, Paul does say in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that we should pray that we can lead a, a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. And that's good. But he says it for the purpose of sharing the gospel, not for the purpose of just taking it easy until Jesus comes back, of being sluggards for Christ. That's not why we are to have tranquility. And peace so that we can just have it easy while the world perishes and we sit and enjoy the pleasures that God has given us. And listen, if you don't long for Christ's coming, it's a good indication you don't know Christ. Because that is the great and blessed hope. The appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. That's what Christians long for. We need to be like Laud, whom Peter describes in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, as oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Is that you? I mean, you just get tired of it. You just want to get out, just rapture. Come, Lord Jesus, come. You're constantly praying because you just want to leave this world. You just want to get out of this world. You just want to be rescued. You want to be free from your own sin, your own problems, your own distresses, your own failures. You want to be with Jesus. You just want to see Jesus. You just want to get up there and get it over with. You want to have your soul encouraged and just without sin for once, for once to worship God without being distracted. And if that's you, that's good. That's good. That's normal Christian thought. To long for Jesus, to want him to come back, to just ache for his coming. And if you're sitting out there going, yeah, I never really noticed it. But now that you bring it up, I do do that. I do find myself longing for Jesus. 
I do think about his coming and, and just asking him to come back now. I just, I constantly pray those things. That's right. That's right. That's good. That's good. And that's what Jesus is talking about in verse 22. He says, the days will come when you will long to see the days of the son of man. True believers, see, are tormented by the evil of this world. Yes, they're ambassadors here. Yes, they're soldiers here. Yes, they're here for a time, for a purpose, which is to lead souls to Christ. But man, they can't wait to go home. I mean, you know, when you're a soldier, even if you believe in the cause, and even if you're in a foreign country, and even you're fighting, you want to go home. And they can't wait for that moment, the twinkling of an eye, when that trumpet sounds and the dead in Christ rise first, and they who are alive and remain are caught up together to be with the Lord in the air, and thus always be with the Lord to see the angels and see Christ and to be rescued, to have salvation in its fullness. Right now we have it just in part, but then we will have it completely. And so if that's not your experience, you need to talk to somebody. You need to talk to somebody and find out why you aren't longing for Jesus's coming. Secondly, false teachers make the heart grow fonder for Jesus' return. Look at verse 23, where Jesus says, they will say to you, look there, look here. Now you say, well, who are they? You know, this is one of those obscure they's. It's like, who, who are they? Well, we know that they're false teachers. Well, how do we know that? Because then he says, do not go away, do not run after them. So they're telling you to do something that Jesus is telling you not to do, which means they're false. They're deceivers, they're liars, they're leading people astray. In 70 AD, when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, the the Jews had revolted and the Romans were so angry that... They just wiped out Jerusalem. They went up on the Temple Mount and just knocked down every single thing and kicked it into the, the Hinnom, the Tyropene, and the Kidron Valleys. They just scraped it off. One of the things that happened is the gold gilding on the temple, when somebody threw something in there, it caught fire and the gold started melting and dripping into the stones. And so they, they not only did they, it burn down, but after it burned down and cooled, they went in there and ripped all the stones apart to dig out the gold. They kicked everything off. Well, when they did that, there were 600 people who, even though they knew the Romans were extremely angry at them, went up on the Temple Mount and were even, some of them were cast off the Temple Mount. Others were slaughtered with the sword. Other, others tried to hold up in this little cloister, this little area, and the building was set on fire and it collapsed and burnt them to death and none escaped. You're thinking, why were they up there? What were they doing up there? Hiding, waiting. Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived at that time, tells us, Josephus writes, quote, a false prophet was the occasion of these people's destruction. He had made a public proclamation in the city that very day that God commanded the Jews to get up on the, on the temple and that there they should receive miraculous signs of their deliverance. There was then a great number of false prophets hired by the tyrants to impose upon the people who told them that they should wait for deliverance from God. 
This was in order to keep them from deserting that they might be buoyed up by above the fear and care of such hopes. Now a man in adversity easily complies with such promises for when such a seducer makes him believe that he shall be delivered from those miseries which oppress him, then it is that the patient is full of hopes of such deliverance and quote Josephus makes some great observations here one the people of God should expect deliverance from God however they shouldn't expect deliverance contrary to what God has promised sometimes being delivered from this world is being burned at the stake you realize that a lot of times Christians think that trying to preserve your life here and now is what it means to be delivered. I have news for you. You're all going to die. We are all going to die. But the Bible says he who believes in Christ shall live even if he dies, right? And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. So for the Christian, we realize, yes, death is normal. Death is going to happen. We're all going to experience death. I'm going to die and you're going to die sooner or later. So the goal is not to preserve your skin so you don't die the first time. The goal is, is to honor God in this life leading to the life to come. And so, yes, there'll be a deliverance from God. And that is a good thing that Josephus points out. Secondly, the people of God are buoyed up above the fear and care of tribulation by such hopes of God's deliverance, which is also true. The way that you cope with the evil in the world is not to say, well, I've got to fight this or fight that. Yes, we preach the gospel. Yes, we lead people to Christ. Yes, we do our you know, be good citizens and those things. But our primary hope is not in the transformation of this world, but is in the second coming of the Lord. You know, people always say, oh, you know, who are you going to vote for for president? I'm voting for the theocratic one world ruler, (laughs) Jesus Christ. That's my vote. And third, people with such hopes of God delivering them are often easy prey to false teachers if they don't know the word of God. This is so so clear. These false prophets came hired by the Romans. The Romans bribed Jews to tell the people false prophecies saying it was from God. So the Jews would not run away. So they would go up on the temple mount and hold still until they could be slain. Which tells us that when somebody's in tribulation, when they're emotional, when they're distressed and they don't know the truth, they're easy game for false teachers. They prey upon people like that. Believers will be hurting. They will be suffering. They will be persecuted before Christ comes, just as it is today. And Jesus, knowing this is going to happen to the disciples, says, yeah, you're going to long for this. I know you're going to go through trials and you're going to long for this, but you're not going to see the day. There will be a generation in the future. They're going to long. They will see the day. And it may be our generation You know, when you are manipulated and exploited by false teachers like the Jews killed by the Romans, that is serious business. And the most subtle, the most devious, the most insidious form of 
false teachers or antichrists. People who say they know Jesus has uh, appointed them or called them to be the new Messiah. They're the second Christ or the reincarnation of Christ or, or better than Christ or the Savior or whatever. And I am so amazed that religious people, people who some of, so a lot of them pro- profess to be Christians, actually follow these people. You know, Marshall Applewhite and the Heaven's Gate cult. Think about that name, Heaven's Gate. This should be Hell's Gate. Leads 21 people to commit suicide where they're waiting for a spaceship on the other side of the moon. Jim Jones claimed to be the reincarnation of Jesus Christ and convinced 900 people to commit suicide. David Koresh, leader of the Branch Davidian, claimed to be the son of God in a big military standoff. You know, Afin Mohammed, founder of the Sky Kingdom cult. Claims to be the reincarnation of Jesus. Sun Young Moon, founder of Unification Cult, claimed to be Christ. Jose Lewis of the, listen to these names, Growing in Grace. Cult claims to be greater than Jesus Christ. He has a huge following around the world. Not surprising, he teaches there is no sin, there is no devil, there is no hell. So of course it's very popular. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, do you don't understand what that means? Sheep's clothing doesn't mean they're, they're like little, you know, dressed up like little fuzzy animals. Nah, that, that's not what it's talking about. We're talking about they're dressed up like shepherds, pastors. In the Greek, the word pastor and shepherd are used interchangeably. They mean the same thing. They're the same word in the Greek. They come to you as pastors, but if you could pull back their disguise and see what's really going on inside, <sighs> ravenous wolf. And their motive is to devour you, to devour you. He says in verse 16, you will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree produces good fruit and the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. So then you'll know them by their fruits. You know, it just amazes me when, when these people come and they claim to be the Christ and, and a prophet or whatever, and Christians leave churches of sound doctrine to go follow them, even though they've got 10 wives. They're in major indulgence. They're saying they have a, you know, the, that they are the only ones who know the truth. They're contradicting the scriptures. And yet, yes, oh, it's the Messiah. What is that? Paul speaking to the Ephesian elders in Miletus said in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 through 30, be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. I just want you to know, we have run off so many false teachers from here. People who come in uttering lies, who say, listen, pal, we're going to tell the gospel to you. If they don't want to listen, we just send them packing. They come in all the time. And we're... Constantly plagued by that. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, 
But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter time, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, when you think of doctrines of demons, what do you think of? Do you think of like, you know, Satan worship and bowing down to idols and totem poles and things like that? Listen to what they are. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience with abandoning iron, men who forbid marriage and abdicate the abstaining of foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Think about it. Somebody comes to you and go, you know, if you, if you stay single, it's more holy. That's a doctrine of demons. Somebody comes to you and say, you know, we should only eat, you know, vegetables or we should only eat meat or we should only eat, you know, Kool-Aid and grapes. I don't know. Um, you know, whatever. And those people who tell you that it's more spiritual, that you could be more godly by eating certain foods, it's a doctrine of demons. Not, not, you know, go worship Satan. Of course, that would be a doctrine of demons, but they're very subtle. Second Peter chapter two, verses one through three. And the whole book of Second Peter is about false teachers, but he says in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, but false prophets also rose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned and their greed will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. Here is the whole picture of these people come in very secretly and they begin to twist the truth and steer people away from the gospel, from Christ, from his resurrection. I mean, it's amazing. People say, well, I don't believe in the resurrection, but I'm a Christian. No, you're not. You are a false teacher. Listen, I do a lot of good deeds. Well, so what? Satan is willing to have you do good deeds if you can lead people astray. It's all about exploiting you with false words. Jude speaks of them in Jude chapter, not chapter, chapter one. There's only one chapter. Verses three and four. Where he says, contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints for certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness, licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in verses 11 through 13, woe to them. And these are some of the most graphic pictures. He says, for they have gone the way of Cain. And for pay have rushed headlong in the era of Balaam. Notice Cain would not worship God as he was supposed to. Balaam tried to curse Israel for money. They perish in the rebellion of Korah. They challenge godly leadership. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. In other words, they come into the church and they celebrate with the saints. But if you get near them, they'll tear out the whole of your faith. They feast with you without fear. They're just brazen in their, they just come into the church brazen to deceive you. Without fear, caring for themselves. They have no love. Clouds without water, no rain falls. Carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Yeah, they're fruit trees with no fruit. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. You can't navigate off them. They're moving around. They're changing their position. 
And he exposes their motives in verse 16 saying, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Oh, they come in. They use all the church, the jargon, their names in the prayer sheet. Oh, please pray. Oh, praise God for their grumblers, fault finders. That's an indicator of who they really are. That is the fruit that you see to see what they really are. And these are the days in which we live today. And the most subtle, the most insidious of all of these kinds of deceptions and false teachers are pastors of Christian churches. Pastors in churches who don't believe the truth. Some are in churches and they preach sound doctrine, but don't believe what they preach. Think about that. Albert Moeller, I just listened to a podcast where he discussed pastors who don't believe in God anymore. A pastor who doesn't believe in God? That's not a pastor. That's a wolf. Then they, the one guy that they interviewed said, you know, it's good job security as long as I do keep pretending to believe in God and keep teaching what, you know, the church is supposed to teach. But really, I don't believe these things anymore. And it's just good job security if I just go along. Think about that. Having, having a pastor who doesn't believe in God, who doesn't believe the truth of the scriptures, and is preaching sound doctrine, but he doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's not saved. He's headed for hell. He's a false teacher. And there he is. He's teaching every Sunday. Scary. And when you see and hear about these kinds of evil men, it should make you long for Jesus to come back and set things right and just sort out the wheat from the chaff, the tares from the wheat and the sheep from the goats. You know, we often think of Satan as as tempting people to, you know, join the Satan cult. But, ah, that is pretty infantile. If you think, you know, Satan is behind all the gross immoralities and, you know, carnality and the movie industry and the media, you're right. But listen, that stuff is like, that's just like his ABC stuff. You got to get way down in the alphabet into the numbers before you find out the complexities of his deception. He wants to have evangelism happen to encourage people in that they become saved when they do something to deceive them with false evangelism approaches in the church. He wants to convince church leaders and pastors, not to mention sin, judgment, repentance, the gospel, but to speak of the love of God and receiving the love of God and to having faith and who knows what, but just have faith. And pray, I don't know to who, but just pray. To encourage people to ask Jesus in their heart. Instead of repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. To tell people that, you know, um, you just need to um, just uh, be good. Be good? What's that? You know... Um, get involved in social work and give to the poor and, and be kind to people. For what? 
So it will take up your time and resources. So you won't do the things you're commanded to do. So you won't grow in knowledge and truth. So you won't lead anybody to Christ. You won't bring them in the church. You won't disciple them. That's why. To just be religiously busy. For religiously busy sakes. Because it makes you feel good. They present Jesus as someone who's there to give you your best life now. Oh, we forgot to tell you that Jesus said that if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. And all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We won't bring that up. Why? They're false teachers. Satan distracts people too with good things, wholesome things even. You know, if Satan can't keep you from being saved, then he switches tactics. Okay, they're saved. God God won this one. Now, let's just make sure they're ineffective. Get him involved in sports and work and hobbies. Get him really busy. Get him so busy he can't be involved in ministry. Doesn't have time to read his Bible. Doesn't have time to go to any church functions. Just have him be a minimalistic Christian. You know, one of those Christians who comes and they just do the bare minimum. Show up on Sunday like Mormons do. If you can't keep a person from hating Christ, he'll labor to convince them they're saved when they're not or to distract them so they just become nothing for Jesus. I'm going to recommend three works to you right now. I think a lot of people are very naive about how Satan is going after them and they have no clue the complexities and the subtleness of his deceptions. Here is the first book I would recommend would be Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. It's an easy-to-read Puritan work. It is very convicting, and he just has amazing insights about how you're tempted and how the remedies to escape those temptations. Secondly, if you want something lighter, something you can read when you're really tired at night right before bed, um, try C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, where demons are having discussion or more recently uh, randy elkhorn's uh, lord falgren's letters of the same kind of genre that he kind of took from lewis's approach the whole point is is these demons the whole book is about these demons trying to keep people from being saved or to keep them ineffective once they get saved it is it just blows you away you go yeah that's what happens to me i remember that i know that i had that happen to me it's just like well And it's going to change your whole perception of things. You'll be praying. You ever pray and you wonder how you haven't even so many distractions? You ever have that happen or read your Bible? You ever wonder why that happens? Hello. (laughs) Notice that it doesn't happen when you read the paper, when you read your favorite magazine, when you're surfing the Internet for hours. It doesn't happen. You open your Bible and say, "Okay, Lord, I'm going to spend time learning from you and praying. All of a sudden, I need to check. I need to. I do. What about this? I should probably do this. Turn to say, you know. Why is that? That's what's going on. So if you see those liars and deceivers and false teachers and false Christs in the world, I hope it makes you long for the days of the Son of Man. If it doesn't, something's wrong. Third, knowing what the Word of God says about the second coming of Jesus Christ should make your heart grow fonder. You know, there's... I think there's always has been and always will be those Christians who seem very passionate about Jesus, very zealous, very emotional in their worship, which is all great, but whose doctrine and understanding of the scriptures is about as deep as a puddle. 
They're like those that Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 10, verse 2, who have a zeal for God, but it is not in accordance with knowledge. They're, they're, they're like wounded wildebeest on a National Geographic show. You know what happens. They're out in the African plain. Camera zooms up. There's a limping wildebeest. What's going to happen? You know what's going to happen. Cheetah, leopard, hyena, lion. That's it. And if you're a Christian, even if you're saved, and you don't have good, sound doctrine and an understanding of the word of God, you are a wounded wildebeest out on the plain of this world, and you will be led astray into every fad and every trend and every twisted book that comes along. Anytime you see a book that's in pallets at Costco, <laughs> you know you don't need to read it. If the world loves it, God doesn't. And it's sad to see people become victims. They're victims of their own ignorance because no one has taught them. No one has showed them how to study the Bible and how to read it in its context. Yeah, if you say, well, why are you doing this? Well, you know, it says this and this and this. And they take little fragments and pieces of verses out of different contexts and assemble them together into a proof text for what they want to do. Oh, that is so dangerous. And they're going to tell you, listen, you, you can't do expository preaching or preach an hour. You, you'll kill your church. Just read into that. I am too lazy and sluggardly to study. You, you can't tell people about hell and judgment and God's wrath and call them to repentance. Read into that. I am a man pleaser. You, you can't make an impact on the world by gathering people into a building and singing hymns and taking an offering and doing these traditional things because, you know, I mean, we live in a postmodern world and, and, you know, you just can't do that anymore. Read into that. I refuse. I refuse to believe that God's word has all I need for life and godliness. You can't have elders and deacons in the church ruling the church. And you can't be doing church discipline. Oh, man, that would just kill your church. I mean, people can't handle that today. Just read into that. I refuse to submit to the clear teaching of the word of God. Listen, the church is so broken today. You could you could go around to a 100 different churches and just... Long to hear the gospel preached one time. It's so rare now. You can go through the phone book and just page after page after page of, of quote, churches who are not churches. They're like Venus flytraps. Waiting for people to come in. As soon as they sit in the pew, it's got them. There's some lilting guy up there. Ooh, the love of Jesus. Let's sing some hymns or they're going to find out whatever genre of music you like, whatever sin you enjoy. They're not going to go there. They're going to give you everything you want, not what God wants, what you want. They're going to feed your flesh, appeal to your mind, appeal to what you want. And then they're going to keep you there so you don't wake up until you're in hell. And that's what's going on in the world. Calvary Bible Church, it's, it's not going to end. False teachers and false Christs are going to increase and it's going to get worse and worse. But we need to make sure we aren't deceived and say, well, how, how are we not discerned when the, when the false Christ comes? How, how do we you know, not, not 
get led astray. Well, look at verse 24. For just like the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. So when they come and say, look here, look there, you can go, I remember that verse. It was like lightning. This is not a lightning situation. That's all it takes. Jesus is going to come back like lightning in a dark sky. You say, well, how do you know that? Because first of all, first Thessalonians chapter five, verse two says he will come as a thief in the night. But if you say, well, that's uh, you know, that's just a simile. And it is. And even if you pitch that verse, Matthew 24 verses 29 through 30 is crystal clear. Jesus says this. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, after the seven years of tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the sky, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Imagine imagine going through the tribulation... Seeing the Antichrist rise to power, all the deception, the Jews being slaughtered, meteorites crashing into the sea, floods and earthquakes and volcanoes and all sorts of things coming upon the earth and half the earth's population dying. You know, some three billion people, if if it happened now, um, three billion people having died. Think about that. Think of all of that catastrophe and death. And then just when you think it it couldn't get any worse, all of a sudden all the stars and the moon and the sun, God flips the switch. And now everything's off. Everything's off. You have suffered. You have seen persecutions. Believers are being hunted like animals. Hundred pound hellstones are pulverizing the earth. Could you imagine that? Have you ever seen a 25 pound block of ice? It's about this big. Imagine dropping one of those out of the airplane at 30,000 feet. Now just get the hundred pounders are about this big. You know, they're like a bale of hay. Imagine one of those dropping out of the sky on your car. Imagine one hitting the roof here. It would come right through. It, when that happens, it will literally pulverize wherever those the hailstorms happen like that. It will literally pulverize everything above the ground. Tree, structure, car, everything. It will pulverize it. And after all these people are dead, then God shuts out the light and it's black. And just imagine, we don't know how long it's going to be when he shuts out the light. It just says it will. The heavens are going to be turned off. The sun's not going to give us light. The moon's not going to give us light. It's going to be pitch black. You know, it may be for an hour. It may be for a day. It may be for a couple of weeks. But if it is for very long, the, the temperature is just going to plummet. People are going to dis, dis, despair. You know why they're going to despair. That Somebody turned out the sun. That is a problem, isn't it? And then Revelation says they will shake their fists at God. They're going to finally get a clue. I think God's behind this. And yet they aren't going to repent of their sin. They're going to shake their fist at God. But the believers are going to have hope. And the believers are going to get more and more excited. Because as bad as it is in the world, they know Jesus is coming. 
Second Thessalonians chapter one, verse seven says the Lord Jesus, we revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. He just says, oh, and when he comes back and yes, he's flaming fire i mean that's scary dealing out retribution remember his eyes are like a flame of fire and his hair is like like wool and his face shines like the sun and he comes back to execute but all the believers are shouting yay marvel that They, they can't wait they are so psyched about it He's coming. He finally came. And Jesus explains his second coming more in Luke 21, which we'll get to hopefully eventually. But he says this, there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves. Not only are going to be these heavy catastrophes, there are going to be huge tsunamis and tidal waves and all these things that people are just going to go, what is going on? Men fainting from fear and the expectation of things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. You know, we always look at the heavens and we think of them as stable, right? The sun's stable, the moon's stable, the stars are stable. I mean, you can navigate by them. The, everything is, you know, based off of their exact calculated movements. But I'm telling you, God's going to turn them off. And when it's pitch black, then he is going to expose to sinful men the radiance of his glory and also to those who long for his appearing. Imagine having rejected God and rejected God over and over again your whole life. And then all of a sudden, all these things are happening and you're trying to cope with it. And when you're in despair, the heavens open up. And you know who that is. You know those are angels. You know those are saints. And you know that is Jesus, the one you said doesn't exist. And he's coming in glory. You need to see it, believer, and picture it in your mind's eye. Ponder Christ at his coming in great glory. And look with anticipation to that. So that when trials come, you long for Christ. When you see evil in the world, you long for Christ. When you see false teachers and false Christ, you long for Christ. When you read the Bible and you just see everything about his coming, you long for Christ. And so Jesus knows that. And Jesus, when he's speaking to his disciples, he goes, you know what? There's going to become a day when you're going to long, but you're, you're not going to see it. Because something had to happen. And first, look at verse 25. But first, before Jesus can return in great glory, he that is Jesus must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. This is the thing that they just couldn't get. Thought the Messiah comes, he sets up his kingdom. There's signs right before the kingdom. We all understand that, but they couldn't separate the first and second comings. They couldn't get that in their mind. That's why they didn't understand. So Jesus had to come, he had to die for sinners, he had to be buried and resurrected on the third day and ascend to heaven, establish his church, lead multitudes to Christ. You know what? Nothing needs to happen now. It can happen right now. 
So I hope that the trials that you may suffer in this world, I'm sure you are if you're a believer, when you see the false prophets and the false Christ and you remind yourself that Jesus can return at any moment, it makes you long for his coming. Daniel W. Whittle wrote a hymn called The Crowning Day. I just found a fragment of this in a commentary and I found it. It is so good. Let me just read it to you. The Lord is now rejected and by the world disowned, but the many still neglected by the many still neglected and by the few enthroned. But soon he'll come in glory. The hour is drawing nigh for the crowning day is coming by and by. The heavens shall glow with splendor, but brighter far than they. The saints shall shine in glory as Christ shall them array. The beauty of the Savior shall dazzle every eye for the crowning day is coming by and by. Our pain shall then be over. We'll sit and sigh no more behind us all of sorrow and naught but joy before. A joy in our Redeemer as we to him are nigh for the crowning day that's coming by and by. Let all that look for hasten the coming joyful day by earnest consecration to walk the narrow way. By gathering in the lost ones for whom the Lord did die for the crowning day is coming by and by. And then the refrain is, oh, the crowning day is coming The coming by and by when our Lord shall come in power and glory from on high. Oh, the glorious sight will gladden each waiting watchful eye in the crowning day that's coming by and by. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to have your word that reminds us of those things that are difficult. And yet they have a good purpose because they teach us to long for your coming. Father, we look forward to that day in anticipation. If there's anybody here who doesn't, if the second coming scares any here, if it makes them irritated, if it makes them say, no, not now, Father, may you have them examine their hearts to see if they really know you. For the believer's blessed hope is Jesus' fearing. May we all trust in you, look to you in your coming, that we might be able to cope and not despair with the evil in this world, knowing that our deliverer, will arise with power and take over the earth in righteousness. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in your blessed name. Amen.